G'day everybody, Paul here. I just wanted to make a couple of quick corrections before we get to the pod. Uh, number one, I said in the pod that Raj Chetty, the economist, has found that if you hold parental income rank constant, uh, black and white women in the United States do exactly the same in terms of their income rank. He actually found that black women do slightly better in terms of their income rank um, if you hold parental income rank constant than white women. Number two, later in the podcast, uh, my guest Manny says that there's evidence that um, affirmative action policies reduce racial wealth gaps. So we talked about this after the pod. We had a look. There's actually not much evidence of that. We did find one study that suggests that the um, affirmative action ban in California did seem to have a negative effect over the incomes of um, Latino Americans, um, but not uh, black Americans. So that's um, uh, interesting research as well. I'll link to both those studies in the show notes, I think. Um, yeah, here's, here's the part. My, my other guest, Rachel, was flawless as usual. everybody and welcome back to more of a comment than a question uh my name is paul connor uh this week on the podcast i have invited back two very special guests um the 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 first guest so she is a phd student at university of north carolina is becoming increasingly uh increasingly vocal on twitter about controversial issues she takes her career into her hands every time she tweets um rachel ernstoff welcome back to the podcast thank you uh thank you for having me and um i'm also risking my career by being on the pod so (laughs) we'll see what happens yeah i mean we are the good part is just not that many people listen to it and i I, I saw your tweet your tweet thread the other day about um, uh, SPSP, um, and I thought, yeah, like that is that is a brave thing to tweet. But then I saw it it got like three likes or something, and I was like, okay, well, <laughs> you know. Um, so my other guest, also a grad student at UNC, um, what he lacks in critical thinking ability he makes up for in <laughs> fast googling to to find uh to find points no i'm i'm kidding uh, manny i'm bringing i'm bringing the critical th- thinking to this conversation <laughs> manuel manuel galvan welcome back to the podcast as well good to see y'all um don't always agree but i love love chatting with y'all about stuff the topics of the day Glad you invite me, Paul, and uh, and of course Rachel and I have these conversations a lot um, off off air. We just talk about whatever politics comes up because we're good friends here at UNC. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. Like so many podcasts is just people that agree with each other, agreeing with each other. You know, like it's actually kind of rare um, to hear people that have different points of view uh, and are able to sort of. Um, unpack them uh in a in a cordial manner which i think to this point we've been able to do yeah I, and just so far, because we'll you can't happens. see 
you can't see in an audio format, but I was emphatically nodding my head that that, yeah, that's exactly what happens on most podcasts is people are just agreeing with each other the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. It gets a little boring. Um, okay. So today on the podcast, we are talking about something that Twitter has been obsessed with for the past, I would say what, three weeks, two or three weeks. Um, uh, CRT, uh, critical race theory, um, it's all anybody seems to be talking about on Twitter. Although a good example of Twitter not being real life, my wife asked me today, "What? So what are you guys talking about on the podcast?" And I said, oh, the, "The CRT bands." And she said, "What's that?" And I was like, "Oh my god, I envy, I envy your life uh, so much not to have heard about this thing." So anyway, critical race theory. Um, I. I guess I'll be honest and say that I don't know that much about it. I mean, I've read a few pieces about it, a lot of Twitter threads, a lot of discussion, listened to a couple of podcasts about it, um, yada, yada, yada. But uh, I think, you know, I saw Manny, you wrote a few tweets about uh, some sort of conservative efforts to censor uh, discussion of critical race theory. Um, and I thought, you know, this is an interesting topic. Like I've, I've talked a fair bit about, um, you know, the sort of a culture of censorship often from the perspective of people on the left wanting to censor ideas. So this is kind of an interesting example of, uh, a push towards censorship coming from, uh, the right. Uh, and Manny, I know that's something you've, you've been interested in and wanted to talk about on the podcast. So set the table for us. What, what, what is going on? from your perspective with regard to critical race theory yeah there's a uh what has been basically a concerted concerted effort from uh, several conservative uh groups as well as just a handful of really prominent individuals in this space uh the people that really come to mind are james Lindsay, um uh, is a really popular person to bash uh, wokeness in general, but CRT has become the latest label uh, label that they've been operating under, um, uh, operating against, I should say. And then the other person that's really prominent is uh, Rufo. Christopher Rufo is a really prominent person here who's been pushing back back uh, against this. And you have like the same cavalcade of the people who have been against uh, wokeness in general, who are also making a lot of the same points, um, just like intellectual dark web types. Um, so this, uh, so you know, obviously the kind of I don't I don't know what the right word is for this, but the anti woke I I prefer st- status quo warrior is my uh, preferred term. Um, people who are kind of pushing it back against uh, the conversation around equity that's been kind of uh, more prominent lately. Um, they have floated different words wokeness has been one that's been in the conversation for a long time crt is just the latest one um and they've and we're going to get into this but crt is two different things and i kind of made a a post about this recently and i think this really came out a lot in a joy reed interviewed christopher rufo i think like two days ago or something and uh she's a political commentator who has a show on msnbc um she uh basically pointed out that like when we're if we're talking about like what critical race theory is it's just a a a concept or some people even say a political movement within legal studies and it helped frame how certain people were thinking about legal studies there's a specific case that we could get into as a good example of this kind of thing um but 
But that's not exactly what Christopher Rufo is referring to. He's referring to basically all the the bad things from his perspective um, that he doesn't like about wokeness. And it's just kind of this umbrella term that, um, from my perspective, is a lot of misrepresentations about what people on the left are saying. But also um, there are some legitimate excesses um, on the left as well that are kind of all in the same category and he's just calling that crt and uh so so the joke on joy reed show was that it's called chris rufo theory um it's not really it doesn't have much to do with critical race theory but it is just like a a collection of stuff that uh he doesn't like and that a lot of that's inconvenient to political conservatism um and it has a lot to do with race and gender and and yeah so i saw a section of that interview where joy reed was (laughs) kind of like arguing that intersectionality is not part of critical race theory and and rufo sort of said it was and she she said it's a different thing dear like in an incredibly condescending way i thought uh but like you read books called critical race theory and they talk about intersectionality like i don't and like there's all these resources that i i found on that guy neil uh, I forget his name, uh, Neil Shenvey, and all these books, a number of these books list intersectionality as a core tenet of critical race theory. So to me, the Joy Reid interview was like kind of an example of just how dumb the the conversation about this seems to be. Uh, and it's like, uh, I think, you know, I've seen it called a shell game where it's like um, you, you just... Uh, you you get somebody on your show you ask them to tell you what what they think critical race theory is and then you say you just say oh well that's not actually critical race theory you don't you don't know you're not a critical race theory scholar and stuff like that and it it just seems like a waste of time this discussion and it, and i think like the things okay so like republicans have tried to ban a bunch of things right like so there's like real things that they're naming that they want to ban uh, from schools, so whether that's critical race theory or not, um, the, they're still trying to ban something. There's there's like a something there that they're trying to target, right? And and so Manny, you said like um, you think it's largely um what they're targeting is largely a misrepresentation of what's like actually being taught or what's actually, and in that sense, like. I had this thought, which is like, well, if it if it is a misrepresentation, if the things that they're trying to ban is not actually what people are teaching, there's no problem, right? Like, because you could keep if it's if what they're naming is not what you're doing, you could just go on doing what you're doing, and what whatever the 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 law is that they're bringing in, which will probably be overturned as unconstitutional anyway, it wouldn't affect you, um, but. I do think, and we should definitely give Rachel a chance to speak at some point, I do think some of the stuff that is being named in these, is being sort of um, set out in these um, ordinances or, or these these sort of um, CRT ban legislation, it kind of is what, what people teach. Like almost all of them, for example, say... You, you know, you shouldn't teach that somebody is necessarily an oppressor based on their personal characteristics, like their race or their their gender or their class. And that's that's literally exactly what is taught 
in these trainings. Like, I mean, we, my friend Kat, when she was on the podcast, that's exactly what she said uh, when I asked about the Irish, like, I asked her, like, um, to what extent should, like, the English people's mistreatment of Irish people, to what extent should I let that influence my interaction with an English person today? And she literally said, well, they're the, they're the oppressor because they're English, so they should have more responsibility uh, for, like, navigating that, um, uh, you know, that, that power dynamic. So, like, some of it, and I again, like, I don't support the idea of banning it, um, I think it's it's fine to teach this stuff, although, you know, some of it, like, I, I probably wouldn't love if my son gets taught it. Like, I'm kind of hoping it goes out of fashion by the time he's, he's in school. Um, but definitely there is some of the things named... Uh, in these bands is is are things that are being taught i think uh and you can't really deny that yeah i think the terminology discussion is like it just really gets nowhere um and it kind of reminded me of the whole like defund the police conversation where it was like you know, people are saying defund the police and then people are like, well, you we can't def- take away all the police funding. And then they're like, well, that's not what we meant. And so now it's kind of like, you know, critical race theory and like critical race theory is this and like, that's not what we mean by it. And there's just like a lot of um, back and forth about what it means. And I was like, so I looked at um, one of the actual laws that were passed um, and I sent that to, to you both to look at. And it didn't mention critical race theory anywhere in there, but that's. But then, like the way people are talking about it, like every single news story or tweet or whatever is saying like the the CRT ban in Oklahoma, and it's like. So so I think like there's, in addition to like the discussion of what the term actually means, there's also this added layer of how it's being talked about in the news and on social media versus what is actually being banned. And so, yeah, I agree with you, Paul, that the things that are actually being banned, I think some of, I think there's, okay, sorry. There's like a separate uh, question of whether we should ban anything. Um, and that really shouldn't, or, or at least, you know, the, the limits on that should be um, maybe much broader than this. I guess what I'm saying is like, we can talk about the fact that there's a ban and that, that there, it's bad that there's a ban. And we can talk about like what the specific things that are being banned are, but talking about like banning critical race theory is meaningless at this point. Yeah. I actually think the analogy you made to the, um, uh, defund the police thing is it like spot on. Yeah. It's the same and it's crazy to it's crazy how much of our political discourse is actually semantics now like like so much of what we're debating is really like what are we talking about and it's like so meaningless and i think like you can argue that's by design right because that is e- it's easy to put people on other on like teams if the thing we're just debating is like words and like what they what they mean because if i think that critical race theory is not a problem and you do then now we're on opposite sides and there's nothing there's not much we can do to get beyond that problem right like like it's just i'm lying or you're lying and we're both lying and from the perspective of the other you're always 
just like some grifter who's like pretending that something is what it isn't um the whole time and we're just a bunch of sophists and now we can't actually talk about policy anymore um so so i I agree that that's like a huge that's a huge problem and i i i hate that that's what, what the debate is so the only reason I started off with like what CRT is is because that's a good place to start if you want to have a conversation is like what actually is CRT. But I agree with you entirely that that's like not the most relevant uh, and salient point. Sorry, Rachel, you were going to say? Well, I mean, I was just going to say, I don't know if it's important to point fingers and blame people, but I think that people on the left who are trying, who are like concerned about these bills and, and are are trying to teach that, uh, you know, about white privilege or things like that. Um, I think they're kind of at fault for saying, like, for, for getting into that discussion to begin with. Like, why are they sort of pushing back and saying, well, that's not what CRT means. And that, that kind of, like, derails the whole conversation um, instead of, like, they should be arguing, one, that, um, you know, free speech and we shouldn't we shouldn't be... Uh, censoring people and two that they should be arguing for the case for teaching about white privilege or whatever else it is that they're teaching if they think that it's important to teach it yeah i mean i'm just not seeing that anywhere yeah i mean so there are best-selling books that offer uh argument for why teaching white privilege is important so it's like robin d'angelo imprint is like a, a really best-selling book i'm not going to necessarily stand behind everything she's write, written in that book and the way she's written it in particular um i do think there's like an obviousness to white privilege to anyone who's just kind of navigated society long enough like you can just talk to you know your black friends and they will say like i've had these set of experiences in social situations with the police with whoever and you can be like well i have had i have not had those situations i think again there's like a intuitiveness and obviousness to those types of uh discussions that doesn't mean that every white person is privileged in every scenario i think that's like one of the misconceptions about white privilege that oh so that means that oprah has it worse than me when i live in my trailer park and it's like well no that's not that's not what white that's not what the conversation of white privilege is about and i think that people get like completely derailed and having that conversation about something that's like a fairly easy to understand and accept point that there is some form of white privilege for a lot of people um not even getting into like the massive level of inequality like if you just probabilistically if you happen to be born uh in the united states and you are black chances are you have far less wealth far less income like we could talk about we can go down the list Uh, i've done videos i've done you know content on this like this is just what it is in the united states there is white privilege if like I don't know how much we have to really debate this point, but um, yeah, I I, I don't think that uh, the thing is that a lot of experts who study CRT are like, but that's not what CRT is. So like, it sucks because the conversation was started off with people on the political right who use the term that they use it incorrectly. And a lot of people feel the need to say, well, that's not the right term. Um, Maybe that's not the right political move. That's a true statement. That's not the right term for like white privilege but yeah it's just an unfortunate reality that people feel like we need to clarify this misconception before we start having the more meaningful conversation yeah hmm i yeah so picking up on that like 
White privilege is, you know, it's a pretty interesting concept, right? Like, um, because, yeah, the like you said, probabilistically, it's true. Like, if you um, are going to, you're told you're like an, a disembodied soul and you're told that you're going to be born in the United States, uh, you can choose whether to be white or black. You probably choose white, right? Um you know, and, but I mean, and there's like, and all these trainers would, will, you know, happily say, but that, you know, there's all sorts of axes of privilege. You know, you would choose to be male over female. You'd choose to be able-bodied over disabled. You'd probably choose to be beautiful over ugly, thin over fat, straight over gay, yada, yada, yada. Like all, all these things. Um, it is, I feel that like, it is very uh, uh, re- reductive, though. Like, um, and like these trainings put an enormous amount of emph- emphasis over some some of these forms of privilege, and and not much emphasis on on the others. Um, and I'm just not, yeah. Like, I'm not sure. Like, I don't know, man. Like, like we've talked before about Raj Chetty's work. Essentially, um, he's got this really interesting uh, work showing that, like, African-American female of a given um, income percentile of parents, the expected income percentile of an African-American female is exactly the same uh, as a white female. Um, there's, so there's, like, you, if, you, if you sort of bought into the idea of white privilege, that wouldn't, that wouldn't make much sense, right? Um, so it's, like, there's a lot of... And with with males, it's very different, actually. Like, so African American male expected income percentile controlling for parents' income percentile is actually a lot lower uh, than than a white male, right? So, so here we have like what I think is really interesting evidence for white privilege, but also really interesting evidence that it might not be. You can't really reduce it um, to just just being white because like the the female data just doesn't doesn't really line up with that. So, so you're arguing for intersectionality? Yeah, like, or, or just complexity, or just, like, nuance, and, like, n- not not these kind of um, very sort of simplified notions uh, of the world that I think get taught in these, these seminars. Um, but... Yeah, like in in broad strokes, like I don't I don't think these these people even really want to ban people from teaching about white privilege, right? Like, so I'm looking at the the Trump equity gag order. So this also didn't mention the words critical race theory, but this this was like inspired by like some Christopher Rufo um, appearance, and I think he might have even helped draft it. So the things that they were banning. Uh, they say divisive concepts means the concepts that, okay, number one, one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. Can we um, just talk about that one? Like, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. It just strikes yeah. me as an, an obvious that no woke person, <laughs> that's the exact thing that woke people are fighting against. The idea that there is somebody who's more, uh, white supremacy, yeah, the idea yeah. of like, yeah, I mean, no, you're right. I think, like, you're, so you're I think right. the purpose, the language, I think the sorry. purpose of that. I think the purpose of that specific clause is to make it seem like the person drafting it is the good guy, 
because right. like look i'm the i'm the i'm the real anti-racist what's because, the what's the opposite of yeah. poisoning the well right like sweetening the well <laughs> yeah yeah anyway so that's number one two the united states is fundamentally racist or sexist so that will fall afoul of a lot of these trainings right because there's, there's this principle almost everybody every critical race theorist says that one of the core principles is that uh racism is not an aberration it's normal and it's sort of baked into like all our laws and all our systems and stuff like that yeah let's talk about that one um because i do think this is you were just arguing let's have nuanced conversation let's let's talk about the complexity so first of all i think like most people will welcome on the woke side like there's this perception of people who are on the political left that like they have these like absolutist rules so every again the 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 classic you know canard of this is so you're saying Oprah is is better off? So so it's like no, it, 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 we, the argument is not that every single like get that out of your head. Whoever has that in their head, that's the wrong notion. That's not the notion that's coming from Kendi. That's not the notion that's coming from any CRT person. That every white person is better off in every circumstance, because sometimes, just like you said, there are situations where black women of a specific SES, I think that's what you're saying, um, are not any worse off than white people we should note that they're not better off like there's there's still like very few cases where like black people are doing better than white people in some scenario i mean some people point at like the nba which i think is kind of a funny uh thing i don't know if we need to go down that road but but yeah so so this is another one of these instances where uh there's like a nuanced way to understand the concept that the u.s is a fundamentally racist society the way that i find it easiest to defend that position and i don't think it's this very difficult position to defend it's basically just think of the u.s's history and the u.s's history started you know in 1619 when people showed up slaves were brought very soon after some people like quibble about well not 1619 those were they weren't uh, i don't like that is not very relevant to me whenever the first slave showed up they've been here since the beginning they did not have rights the concept of whiteness was born, which wasn't really a prominent concept in like Europe, but that these, you know, slaves were not human. They were subhuman somehow and they were mistreated. And that proceeded through the rest of American history up until the point where you get the freedom of slaves and Juneteenth in 1863, uh, 65 is Juneteenth. And then from there, you still have the program of just massive inequality that's enshrined in law, in Jim Crow laws. And then and then that continues until the civil rights era, which is barely the 1960s, right? And then from there, you have enshrined, also enshrined in policy and institutional forces, redlining, and that continues through, it doesn't become illegal until 1975 or something like that. So basically, if you just think about the, the history of the United States, it's almost 80% of the history of the United States that black people were considered inferior and it was enshrined in the law of the country. Now, to say that that is a country that has in its DNA racism is, a, to me, that's like a fairly reasonable point. Like, okay, like that's a reasonable perspective to have that for a country that if you if, if, if we were scoring this country, it is a B plus on racism. Because it's been 80 some per, eighty plus percent of 85 or more percent of our country's history, if you consider when people first caught here as of the beginning of the country's history. Wait, B um, plus. So 
Higher grade means more racist? Higher <laughs> grade means more racist. This is the KKK's okay, right. racist test. Okay, right. Okay. So, I mean, like, most people would consider that. That's a significant portion of your country's history. And that's all that state. To me, that's what that statement's saying. It's saying a big chunk of this history of, of all the... And, and the other thing to consider is, like, the vast majority of black people in this country come from... Are descended from those people. Um, unlike other immigrant groups, unlike Asian Americans or other immigrant groups... Almost every black person in the United States comes is descended from slaves, um, and they were then put in ghettos. And we can like that—that's a whole history. That's a very reasonable statement. And so some people get really caught up on that. Well, how can you say it's a fundamentally racist country? It's like well, because it's like a really reasonable historical argument to make that that is the case. Um, you don't have to believe it. Like I get that people disagree here, and maybe they say. Uh, well, I'll let you guys talk. <laughs> well, I think that um, two things. One is that there, those laws and policies were happening and were in place, and I'm definitely not like going to argue against that. But there were also, I, I disagree with Kendi, there are not just either racist or anti-racist policies. There were also a bunch of other neutral things going on in the United States. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different areas of life that just aren't related to race. Um, so that's just one thing. Like, I think that the, the sort of breadth of racial relevance, it's like, it's like so, some things are related to race and some things just aren't. Um, but then... I think another part of it is like there have also been a lot of like racial progress, right? There's like voting rights and you know what like there there was slavery, but then we also like ended slavery. So for like for every racist thing in the past that's happened, we've sort of we've made progress. We've stopped the racist laws and and gotten better. And so, uh, and I agree that there are currently still policies in place that make life worse for black people and we need to fix those. But I think the framing of like the U.S. is inherently racist makes it harder to fix those things because it's like, well, if, if we're, if we're just inherently racist, then like, what's the point of trying? What's the point of doing, change, trying to change if this is who we are? Um, Yeah. Yeah, Manny, like, I, I kind of appreciate what you were saying. Like, like, there's one interpretation of this where it just means for the vast majority of the history of this country, it was literally racist. Like, racial groups were not equal under the law. Um, and then, but I kind of think, you know, Rachel has a point too, like, you know, to take that and say, well, that means the country's fundamentally racist, you know, there's a, you could put a whole other spin on it and say, well, the country's fundamentally anti-racist because of all the progress that it's made and because of how much racism has been stamped out, you know, and how much progress has been made and stuff like that. So it's really, but I actually don't, do you really think that like, you wouldn't be able to teach that history that you just described based on, based on this order? Or do you, like, because it, it sort of seems to me that you could still teach that, but you could just kind of say, well, you know, 
this has been an undeniable part of this country and you know it's leg- we still have good evidence that the, this legacy kind of lives on uh in massive inequalities um so we still have a long way to go i just and then i don't know i i guess the i'm i don't want to i definitely don't want to play the part of defending trump's equity gag order here so like i think it's dumb like it's a stupid thing it's a stupid thing to say you can't teach that the United States is fundamentally um, racist, but it's also maybe a little stupid to say, "Oh, but I can't, I can't teach about the history of racism without teach without saying those words." Yeah, I think if you, as long as you like, fall short of saying, like, literally the things that they say that you're not allowed to say, you know, like I think, I think that the um, people on the left are like strawmanning these arguments a little bit by saying like well now you now you've told me i can't teach about racism or i can't teach about slavery or like i can't but that's nobody's saying that um i and and i agree paul like we shouldn't yeah i think just like we need to set aside the question of whether there should be bans at all because we all agree on that uh i think and like then it's just not interesting but just you know assuming that we're not talking about like literally the legality or or you know whether there should be like the implications for free speech things like that i think we can just have the discussion in the framework of like what should be taught rather than what should be allowed to be taught well well so just to react to a few of the the uh points that have been brought up um i do agree that there are two separate conversations to have one of them is about like what what is actually in the law and whether we agree or disagree with that law um and the other one is like should the law have been passed in the first place we all agree everyone on this podcast we all agree the law should not have been pos- passed in the first place this is not the 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 realm of legislative responsibility to determine what should be taught in classes or not um and i think something else i want to point out is this is the project of the political right like you don't see the political left using the legislator using the state to determine what can or cannot be taught in classrooms. You don't see that. You see that on the political right with creationism. You see that with uh, what can be said about um, Palestinian and the Israeli conflict, which has come up as well, that certain things cannot be uttered uh, in a political situation. And then you also see that here, that, that we are utilizing the state, the state and federal government to determine what can or cannot be taught. That is not the way that it works for the political left, which is mostly just a bunch of like annoying college students from the perspective of most of us. We don't like how they're trying to shut down debates or even just college professors or even. Yeah, th- that tends to be it. Um, I was going to make one more point, but Rachel, you. you yeah, just to quickly on that point, because I think that the reason that we're not seeing that is because the people who control all of the education system are people on the left. Like not the, the 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 bigger system, but like you know the teachers themselves and and people writing the textbooks and whatever. So they're like, it's pretty no, that's wrong. <laughs> like as somebody who went to school here, I can tell you that I learned that this that the Civil War was about states' rights, which is entirely historically inaccurate. The 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 they're actually determined by it's a very it's it's actually. Texas and California largely determine what's in textbooks that is taught to to kids. And again, I learned that because Texas is largely uh, 
conservative and a lot of the 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 people there are conservative and so they actually wrote textbooks that have false information about history um maybe at the collegiate level we could talk about there's being like a little bit more of a a liberal slant there but even then we can still talk about the board of education that actually has last say over a lot of what goes on on the university level is still run a lot of those people are fairly conservative they're ceos they're people like that very wealthy people who tend to be more conservative so there's a nice split at the university level below that a lot of that is determined by people of various political strikes I, you know but but a lot of that is conservative too especially when we get into history um there's a reason why we don't have a class that talks about racial inequality at the high school level or anything and it, it, it's not that like that's all controlled by liberals like that's not the correct in, uh, understanding uh, from my perspective of what's going on uh, at the sub college level um in the u.s yeah, but Manny, you're pretty old, so it's been a while <laughs> since you've been in school. Uh, things may have changed. I have 30. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, but um, I guess, like, just to just to clarify my point is that, like, my impression is that the teachers themselves skew more to the left. Obviously, it's not going to be every teacher, um, and that might be wrong, but... That's my impression. It's definitely true at the university level, um, especially in like humanities, social sciences. Um, but because of that, then like the board of trustees or legislators, like they feel like they need to intervene, and that's where you get like you know uh, textbooks that are like have more of a conservative bent is because they are concerned about you know maybe, um, about like the leftist teachers brainwashing their kids. So they want to make sure that they're, they're having some control over like what the material that's being taught is. And I don't think that they're, so that's why I think like no one on the left is trying to push any laws because they don't need to basically. Yeah. There's still a huge problem with textbooks nowadays, but, um, even when there was let's say that there isn't a problem with textbooks at the under under the university level like before that in high school and junior high and elementary let's say that like that's been dealt with and now they talk about slavery when it, in in reference to the civil rights i'm sorry the the civil war um and all the rest of the problems that history is taught incorrectly still in the 90s in the 2000s in the 2010s nobody Nobody on the left said we need to use a federal mandate to force all of these schools to teach something different. Um, that all happened at a grass, grassroots level, basically saying like, hey, these books, historians coming out and saying, hey, these books are incorrect. We need to fix them. If that's the so, so that's what that's the huge hypocrisy here. Right. Like the, the right has been talking about. We need you need to deal with deal with right wing ideas on their merits. You need to you need to debate them. And now they show up and say, actually, we're going to use the federal government and the state governments to determine what can and cannot be taught in classes. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's completely hypocritical. Well, but we all agree this this it's not we should kind of. But like, do you not think? Do you not think some of this stuff is a little much? Like, I was reading actually. So it was we should get into that. Rufo but- piece that's about. the conversation we want to have is like what is the actual 
you know, what are the bad things that are happening under, maybe they're being mislabeled CRT, maybe they're just like woke stuff gone or muck, you know, so let's talk about that. I think that's the conversation y'all want to have. And we all agree that this law should not be here to begin with. Um, so yeah, sorry to interrupt, Paul. Yeah. Um, so num- I wanted to talk, I wanted to keep going with this gag order though, because I think the next one's kind of interesting. So number three, uh, an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. I mean, like I said, that's what that's what cat that's what cats out there teaching people. Um, and and I think okay, so Manny still man this one because like you like definitely the one about the U.S. is fundamentally racist. Yeah, on some interpretations, like totally reasonable statement. This one. This one's interesting because, like, I agree. What? Yeah. What is the interpretation that makes this a reasonable thing? To I think, like, it's kind of getting at what you were saying is that, yeah, like all white, all white people have white privilege, um, and there's all these axes of oppression and subordination. But, like, yeah, like for, I mean, cat. God bless her. Like, I think she has really good intentions, um, but she's not, she's not studied any, any of this stuff. Um, you know, she's probably read a few things and watched some talks and stuff like that. And, and she's literally out there teaching people. Yeah. Like if you're on this side of the binary, you're an oppressor. And if you're on that side of the binary, you're marginalized or you're, you're oppressed. And I think it's a weird thing to teach to kids. Like I, you know, uh, I I do, and even though I don't want to ban people from teaching it, um, yeah, like it's a hard one to. I mean, what evidence? Like, how could that possibly be an evidence-based statement? Yeah, no. Um, so let's let's talk about the word inherently because I think the word inherently is doing a lot of work there. Um, um, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a person that says, if we didn't live in the society we live in, that white children, white people are going to be inherently racist. Like on the CRT side, on the woke side, I just don't think that anyone's engaging in biological essentialism here. Um, but I think that's the way that a lot of people on the right are framing it. It's like, oh, you're saying that white people are biologically, genetically racist. It's like, no, that's not the argument. So just get, let's just set that aside. That's like not what anyone is saying, I think. Um, because again, if we didn't live in a racist society, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't have these tendencies. I think like the really great example of this kind of thing is those, have you seen, you've seen the doll study where you like, sit kids down, you show them a, a black doll and a white doll, which one's stupid, and they pick the black doll, which one's ugly, but they pick the black doll, or the uglier of the two, basically, which one's the stupider of the two, which one's the, ba- the which one's bad of the two, and they pick the black doll. So that is the kind of thing that shows that racism takes root very early, um, and demonstrates that pretty clearly, um, that there's some kind of bias that's like inculcated very early. That's different than inherently. I don't think like we inherently have five fingers. I don't think we inherently have racism the way that we inherently have five fingers. But you you inculcate this very early on from the movies that you watch, from the TV, from 
from the way your parents implicitly treat servers at a restaurant to whatever. Like, I agree that it's a little bit unfalsifiable, but in the sense that, but in a, in a certain sense, it's not. If if it was, um, so I, I agree for a specific individual. There, there's some that this is a probabilistic statement. I wish that this was stated more probabilistically because I think like it's not that every single white person is going to show this bias. There's going to be some white kids who do that study who pick the white doll as being the dumb, ugly one and some kids who choose the, and, and, and so are those who so would we say that those kids, you know, didn't grow up in this culture. Like to some degree, I agree with you entirely that it's not every single white kid. It's not every single white person. It's just, if you average the group, the average will be higher for white people who choose that black doll. Although there's there's some evidence that also like black kids will do the same thing. Um, there's an internalized sense of racial inferiority um, that comes also with living in our culture. Um, Rachel, did you have a reaction? So I think that people on the left have done a lot of work to talk about how black the black race is socially constructed. But I think that they also don't, they don't do the same about white race at all. Um, and instead it's, it is a lot more essentialized whether like if you really press down and like question someone and like, did you mean that people are born thinking X, Y, Z, they'll probably say no, but that doesn't mean that that's not how that they're not treating it as if it's like a fundamental inherent part of who you are that you can't change. Like essentialism isn't just being born with something. It's, you know, it's a collection of things about like basically like not being able to change or being like, um, yeah, like entitative and a bunch of other things. So I think that maybe they wouldn't agree with the, um, genetic part of it but but they are still essentializing race uh and if you google like white people are so and just leave it blank you're gonna find like a million articles on how on just like how messed up white people are um but you're not but like no one thinks that that there's anything wrong with that right and i mean on the left and I think that that is a reasonable thing for uh, to, for people to be pushing back against. Yeah, I actually think this is just really getting to the heart of what's going on and what, what's driving these bills, right? Um, white, the Republicans are making a bet that, uh, like, with this, this sort of explosion in DEI trainings post-George Floyd and, and this push to have like uh, DEI trainings in schools um, the way that it's being taught sort of does often push at that line of telling people like all white people are racist right and I've, I've like I've heard diversity trainers say those exact words like you are all racist because you're white like every white person is racist stuff like that uh, white people white parents hate hearing that themselves but also hate the idea that that's being taught to their kids and I think Republicans are just betting that they can win votes by, like, coming out uh, as protecting white kids from having to hear that, basically. Um, 
and I don't know if it'll it'll work. I saw one um, one survey that uh, it said only thirty percent of independents were in favor of CRT bans, something like that. But I I don't know, man. Like it seems to me, much like the defund the police thing, it seems to me a lot of this stuff seems to me a little bit like the left like giving the giving the right like a a gift right like a political gift of like yeah we're gonna go into schools teach your kids all all white people are racist and give this this really easy like free kick to the the right to be like well we're gonna ban that like no america's a great country we're not a racist country yada 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 like um and and they're sort of betting that that still has enough sort of broad appeal and stuff like that and i don't know man like i'm not like my my wife in the kitchen this morning she was like yeah like basically (laughs) what did she say she was like yeah they're just trying to switch it and teach all the kids that white kids are evil now and that's that's bullshit and i don't want hugo you know our son who's like half white i mean if you look at him you'd think he's he's fully white i don't want you go to like be taught that and i was like yeah yeah i kind of don't i don't either i'm not going to vote republican because of it but like i don't know some people it might it might win them some votes and i think that's really what this is all about um ultimately so i'm not sure i agree that that's the full story i think another there is white identity politics embedded in all of this like some people just there's I, I made a prediction on Twitter and I'm going to stand by my prediction that we are going to see a discussion of um, white genocide, which right now white genocide is a alt-right, like you can find it on Stormfront, is which is a white supremacist website that, you know, whites are getting replaced and they're not re- procre- procreating as much as other racial groups and they're being exterminated through demographic change, basically. That is going to enter the mainstream of Republican talking points is is kind of the argument I would make. Um, And that's the kind that's like the end result of white identity politics embedded in this conversation. I'm not saying but that's that's I'm just bringing this up in contrast to what you're saying. So you're you're kind of saying that like um, the left is is, you know, calling whiteness evil or white people evil, which I think is distinct from whiteness. And we can get into that if we want to. Something I wanted to address is a point that I think Rachel made, which is like to call something inherently racist is the same thing as saying not being able to change. And I don't think that that is the claim that's being made, because if that were the claim that were being made, that's a claim that comes from like uh, Afro pessimism. I'm not sure if you're familiar with if you've heard that phrase before, Afro-pessimism, but it's basically a a certain kind of philosophical position that says, like, there is no way we are ever going to get past the racism of the past. We will always have racism. White people will always hate black people. And we are just... And and it's just... It's right in the name. Pessimistic. Uh, And I think that is not the position of most mainstream leftists. If it was, what's the point of the trainings? Why even have DEI trainings? Because people aren't going to change. Why even talk about it? People are just going to be racist for the rest of their lives. So I think in, embedded in the core, a core element of these trainings is the idea that people can change. People can address these fundamental ideas that they hold in their head that are, again, inculcated through culture. 
Um, and that if you think about them enough and if you consider them enough and if you do our training and pay us thousands of dollars to, to train your uh, group of corporate people, that you will change um, and you'll now be better and you can avoid the lawsuits that come from, which is the whole reason why the trainings exist in the first place, let's be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, you're not going to get me to defend the trainings. I think the trainings have come before the scientific evidence. And I think if you're going to do trainings... It should be on the heels of verifying that the trainings work. And I think that's where a lot of this has gotten messed up. Lots of people who make a lot of money from doing this, Robin D'Angelo being a primary example, um, jumped ahead of scientists who are working on ways to curb racist, implicit bias, racist perspectives, uh, bad behavior that makes black people uncomfortable in the workplace. I think there's a lot of really thoughtful people trying to develop ways to do that. And a lot of people who kind of have their grift have jumped ahead of that scientific process and started saying, no, you just need to have me talk to your people for an hour and pay me $10,000 and that'll solve your problem. Uh, and so we all agree also, this is another thing we all, th all three of us agree on that these trainings are pretty crap. Um, but uh, it is true that, again, probabilistically, a lot of white people have certain perspectives that don't align with the project of dealing with racial inequality as it exists in the United States. Um, it, and, and I can throw some stats at you if you like, but um, basically, uh, you know, something like 53% of black respondents have reported that dis discrimination against minority groups is a critical issue in the United States. And only 17% of whites agree. And this is a fundamental difference in the way that they're understanding racial inequality in the United States. A lot of white people just don't think that there, there is a problem of racial discrimination. And we know from empirical research that there is. And but this is a fundamental make them difference. Does racist? Well, I'm not making the claim that they're racist. I'm making the claim that their misunderstanding results in perpetuating racial inequality. This is where the concept of woke came from, right? That people like come around to recognizing that, hey, the things that black people are talking about are real. They're real problems, guys. Like recognize the real problems around us and help us do something about them. Um, and that, I, I mean, that just leads to the question of um, how, right? Like, and I, this is, this is for me one of, yeah, like, I mean, you mentioned the term earlier, status quo warrior, right? And I, it, like, it's it's a it's a funny thing to say, but I also just think like, it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a cheap shot. Like, surely there is scope for people. Okay, like you say, you say you want we there's these problems, racial inequality. There's an enormous wealth gap, and we want to like we want to fix that, right? Um, but it seems obvious to me that there's ways of doing that that are bad and there's ways of doing that that are better, right? Like you, I think I, I said in previous podcasts with Lee Sim, like if we chose one white person at random and burnt their house down, we would have a more racially equal like society, right? Like the racial wealth gap would come down, but it's probably not a good, good policy. Like it goes against other principles and yeah. other other rights that, that we want to protect and stuff like that sure. so so there is like a legitimate debate to be had about well how how do we go about doing this and i my what i see is a lot of the time this sort of 
whatever you want to call it, this woke perspective leads to like terrible policies, uh, like it, it, in all sorts of areas. Like there was, you know, the defund the police thing, um, which I think is kind of like been a sort of a terrible idea in, in it, all its implementations. I know there's this like ideal version of it. Um, but I think like for the most part, if you want better policing outcomes, it's going to require more funding, not, not less. There's like all these things being done in schooling to try to lead to more equitable outcomes, like canceling gifted classes because they're not like, they don't have equal racial representation. Um, removing removing penalties for late assignments because you know removing standardized testing even though like the uc system did even though their task force told them it was working as intended and stuff like this so like i think like yeah like that you have to be able to push push back on the actual policies that are being implemented without being you know accused of well, A, being racist, which is not what you do, but it is what a lot of people do, uh, or accused of being like a status quo warrior, so to speak, because like this is, this is the actual important stuff uh, that affects people's lives, like not these like symbolic discussions about whiteness and, and stuff like that, even though I guess they could have, they could have an impact on interaction. So if, you're, if your mic's working, what do you think, Manny? And and if not, we'll just assume that you 100% agree with everything I just said. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, did you want to jump in first? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I, I just, I, yeah, I really agree with that point, Paul. And I think that, like, the sort of, like, political polarization that we have and um, just the, the level of discourse that our, we have in our society has made it really difficult for people to argue within their tribe within their group. Um, but that's really like what we need. We need people on the left to step up and say like, Hey, the training programs that you're doing are really bad. You should stop them. And maybe we're doing more harm than good by calling all white people racist. And maybe this whole like Karen meme is actually going to backfire. So we should stop it. And like, um, just like, we need people to be arguing about what are the effective ways to have diversity and equity and like racial progress as opposed to what are the ways that look the most uh, appealing or sort of like you know yeah have the have the best like signaling value uh, and and it really seems like that conversation just is non-existent i mean we're having it now um but I do agree that like, but you don't, but you tell me that I'm not on the left. So I've told you you're not on the left. <laughs> That's whatever separate conversation. I mean, yeah. I mean, not on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause if people do no, but that's like part of the problem is if people do, like, if I, t if I say I'm on the left and then I also argue against all these things, then people start telling me, are you sure you're on the left? I don't think you actually are based on the things that you're saying. And it's like, well, I can have these, the values of the left, but disagree with a lot of the th the ways that these values are being played out. I mean, there are reasons why I would think for, if in some of your takes, I don't think you're necessarily left, but that's, but that's like a whole conversation. We don't have to talk about climate change here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But I agree with y'all both. I think I'm driven by evidence-based practices. If if it's if it if we haven't done the research on the training, I don't know why we're doing the training. Why are we doing the training? In fact, I'm going to tweet that right after this conversation that like just to be clear, if your anti-racism training has no empirical support whatsoever, you shouldn't be engaged in it. Um, because we don't know if it'll work. You might make things worse. Now, I, I will also add on to that, that um, it's possible that things that are helpful could make people uncomfortable. And that is okay, also. Um, I, I don't think the fact that some people find something uncomfortable is an is a obvious sign that it doesn't work. Um, so if, if some white people are like, hey, I don't like you know having this conversation about white privilege that doesn't in and of itself mean that it's not a conversation worth having. Um, This goes back to just like general research about delay of gratification. Sometimes it sucks, but you have to like put off the good feeling now so you can have the better thing later. And we have to do this on a societal level at some point. It might suck to think about how vast the, the level of inequality is between whites and blacks, but maybe you have to think about that first so that you can keep that in mind when you pull the lever in the voting booth later. Um, because you should think about that a little bit um, when you're making decisions politically. What's up, Rachel? I'm sorry. It's just, I hear this a lot and it really annoys me. So we have to talk about this. This whole thing about like feeling uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I feel like people sort of assume that that's what everyone's reaction is. And they also assume that that is why they are opposed to whatever is being talked about. And I think both of those things are just wild assumptions that have no basis in reality or very little basis in reality. Um, but it's, but it's almost, it's like being uncomfortable has become like fetishized. It's like, like that is almost like what we're aiming for. It's like the more we can get people to be uncomfortable that's how we know we're doing the right thing. And you, there's literally headlines like that, you know, every day. But f- first of all, I don't think that a lot of this is really that uncomfortable. Uh, and maybe that's just because I didn't grow up in the U.S. And like, <laughs> I don't, you know, take personal responsibility for everything that like white people in the U.S. have done. But it's just like it's uncomfortable that the like the facts of racial inequality and and suffering and all that those are very uncomfortable facts but i don't feel like personally uncomfortable about it um i guess yeah it's hard whatever you know what i mean um and i just like i don't i don't know why is that ever why is everyone obsessed with this uncomfortableness so i just use uncomfortable to be like facts things that we didn't like to hear um, and you, you could substitute in, a, in any language, but, but there's like, just like you said, I mean, but what makes you think that, sorry, go ahead. So, sorry, sorry. sorry. No, I think that this, we have plenty of evidence that this stuff, these trainings make, make a lot of people feel uncomfortable and there's parents, parents don't feel comfortable with their kids being exposed to this stuff. Um, or just sad or upset or whatever language you want to use like i don't i don't care what the word is but like when you learn about the extent of slavery it's it's pretty shitty when you realize how bad it was and it's the same thing with like that's when interesting. you realize I, that, like when you realize yeah. that like yeah i went to the uh civil rights museum in memphis 
Um, that was a really interesting experience. Like I, you know, you're walking around like, and like every room you go in is like teaching you about another, another part of sort of segregation and America's racist history and stuff like that. And like, and like, there's all these black people there. <laughs> and so like, you're just walking around and I'm, I just didn't, it was uncomfortable because I didn't know what am I supposed to do? Like at one point, like I almost, I like started crying. Like I had like tears in my eyes and then like, I'm like, but I didn't know whether to like look at the black people or like not, or whether to just like, you know, you sort of want to look at them and just be like, Hey, like, I'm really sorry all this stuff happened and stuff, but you can't, you can't communicate yeah. that with a look. So yeah. Like I do think, I do think there's an element of discomfort in talking about these things, even if it's like, Oh, here's all this stuff that like happened to other people and was done by some people to other people. But I definitely didn't. Right. I don't know. I didn't get the impression. Like when we were all in the gift shop after coming out, I didn't get the, <laughs> I didn't get the impression that like, <laughs> race relations were particularly helped like by us all spending two hours focusing on like awful shit white people had done, done to black people. Um, and I didn't, I definitely didn't get the impression that, um, yeah, like that those black people were looking at me particularly positively as like, Oh, he went to the civil rights museum and like, he's interested in that kind of stuff. I don't know. Like I could, I could be totally wrong, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, there is, there is this, there is this discomfort is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Sorry. Let me just like real quick clarify. Cause I think I said things in a bad way. Yeah. So like, I do, I, like, I guess it depends how you define being uncomfortable, right? Like, and like every time I'm engaged with like just how bad all of the inequality and, and disparities and stuff is, like I do, I just like start crying and I feel really bad. But I, I think what I'm pushing back against is really the next step of it is like, that never makes me feel like I don't want to engage with this. Like it is never like I need to step away and not deal with it because I'm sad. Um, and I think that is, that's like really the, the thing is the the sort of assumption that like people's discomfort is then going to cause them to not want to engage with it. And therefore it's like, no, you should be uncomfortable. Um, mm. But it's, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I get, it bugs me when any pushback is framed as, oh, this is white fragility, this is defensiveness and stuff like that, which is totally like Robin D'Angelo's entire shtick. Like if you, it just, but we've already agreed that these trainings suck. So maybe we're getting sidetracked. But Manny, I, like what do you, yeah, so like the, the racial wealth gap, for example, like, how do you think we solve it? Like, what what are the what are the policies that you think actually close that gap? I think my microphone's not working really well. Can you hear me? Um, well, that's convenient. <laughs> Manny has no <laughs> solutions as usual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When it finally comes time to, <laughs> you know, put your cards on the table and give us some, give us some policy solutions, all of a sudden the microphone doesn't work. No, I mean, <laughs> I think, 
I, I mean, I guess, Manny, like the research that's, that's, you do, uh, the writing you do seems so, very much aimed at convincing people there's a problem, right? Convincing so, people there's discrimination and stuff like that. And, and so, like, is your point of view that, well, raising awareness is a first step to getting the policies that we, we might need? So there are a few ways that I would respond to that. One is that I'm not an expert on the solutions. I'm more of somebody who knows more about the situation as it currently exists. Descriptive, you could say. Um, there would be a different expert that would be pres- prescriptive. Um, the solutions that I'm familiar with a little bit would be things like reparations. Um, and reparations need not be give everybody who's a descendant of slave a check. I actually think that's the most, the least, like, that's my least favorite version of reparations. I think the better version of reparations is like a lot of like of the universities that exist in the United States were built on slave labor. Why don't we make it so that if you are the descendant of slave, you can go there for almost nothing, right? It's just like your tuition is covered. Um, we know that education is a really vital uh, linchpin in determining who becomes uh, successful later on. We know that like affirmative action programs have worked. Um, there's there's good data that shows that states that implement affirmative action programs tend to have they tend to close those gaps a little bit more than than groups that have not. There are some evidence based approaches. I would suggest the College Transition Collaborative, which is a really cool uh, science based uh, approach to implementing changes. Um, those are all things that can happen. I think that the other thing I, you know, I already mentioned affirmative action. Affirmative action can be implemented in various places. Which one? So the college, yeah, yeah, college transition collaborative. Yeah, it's it's actually where I used to work. Um, they are based out of Stanford. They're a nonprofit organization. They develop uh, psychologically um, um, informed, based on the the best research that's out there. They use that research to create uh, um, uh, interventions that better uh, racial inequality. So the one that I'm most familiar with is the belonging intervention, which is basically an intervention that's designed to, um, as uh, uh, students of color come into the university, they are uh, given this like intervention, and that intervention has downstream effects such that it closes the, um, the achievement gap between white and black students. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not going to do a deep dive on it right now because I don't have that stuff in front of me necessarily, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's a helpful thing. I think we just need to utilize the, the tools of science, come up with interventions, implement them at a lower level and then, and scale them up, uh, as we understand that they work. Um, affirm again, affirmative action is a successful program as far as I'm aware from an empirical standpoint. Uh, it shows that it, it it closes some of those wealth gaps. Um, but yeah, I think those are the kind of just like basic things that you could do. A society of people who actually say, hey, this is a big problem. We are going to solve it. Let's utilize the the power of the state to, to make sure that these uh, problems are fixed. These are the kinds of things you would do. But it's the same, like you could ask the question like, oh, climate change, you're trying to say we should care about climate change, but what are you actually going to do? And it's like, that's a good conversation to have, but we actually need to all get on the same page first that climate change is not a Chinese hoax. And once we're there, then we can really implement something that that actually works. Uh, But the first step is like getting everybody on the same page. 
I don't know. I disagree. Like, I think a lot of, um, a lot of things like public health behaviors, um, just like behavioral changes that we try to, uh, implement in society. Like people have tried to go the route of changing people's minds, but really like behavioral interventions work a lot better. Um, you know, like things like nudges, um, like, you know, you can convince everyone that climate change is real, or you can just shape their behaviors in a way that is better for to fight climate change. And like, why would you, why is the first one more important? It seems like it's better to just get at their behaviors. We are on the same page here. I, I agree that like, it needs to be I think it should be a hand, all hands on deck kind of thing. And so if there are things you can do to, to nudge people in the right direction, the fact is, though, that like Republicans in general are going to uh, obstinately stand in the in the way of implementing such policies unless their constituents agree that this is a policy worth implementing. And so for me and you, it's just a nudge and it's nudging in the right direction. And we agree that that's the right direction. But for you to muster the resources of the state to make that happen, you have to get people on the same page that that is a, a policy worth implementing. And I think that's where the messaging uh, conversation happens, where we have to get people to agree that climate change is a real problem. Because right now, the people who stand in the way of implementing reasonable, common sense climate change cha- uh, policy are are republicans who are getting a lot of money from uh oil industry and they're also like they have a lot of constituents who don't buy that climate change is a real problem and so those two factors lead into them kind of being obstinate and preventing anything from happening and so we have to we have to fight both war we have to fight both battles in this war ultimately to do anything about this i I have uh i have more thoughts on that but it's kind of getting off topic um yeah, um, I, I wanted to. I remember when um, Andrew Yang was uh, running for the Democratic nomination. I remember reading. I didn't. I didn't look that much into it, but I remember reading something that said like uh, universal basic income uh, is the single policy that would um, like reduce racial inequality the most uh, in the United states uh and it's you know it's a completely colorblind policy um so i don't yeah i don't like and this is an important bringing it back to crt this is an important element of crt is that you cannot solve racism like color like literally like colorblind ideology is racist because it, it it serves as a mask uh and it serves to um uh it, like yeah it's a, it serves to hide all the racism embedded in in the system like this um colorblind ideology and myth of meritocracy uh is another one but i just yeah i don't i don't totally i don't totally buy that um i think that um you know uh wealth inequality between the rich and the poor is a, is a lot greater than you know, between whites and blacks. And um, yeah, I kind of, there's like, there's like really, really far left, like Marxists that um, kind of believe that like racial divisions are 
often used to distract um, from uh, class di- class divisions and um, a, a sort of used to sort of divide and conquer, right? So like if you're um, uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, one one easy way to prevent people focusing on sort of taxing your wealth is to just make white working class people hate black working class people and vice versa, right? And you can kind of see this. I've seen some like, I don't totally buy into it as a conspiracy theory, but they're at least very interesting. Some plots um, sort of showing the rise in identity politics, uh, adjacent terms like white privilege, systemic racism and stuff like that. Like all these things have just like, there's like this hockey stick. They've just like gone crazy. Uh, And you can sort of chart it back very close to the Occupy Wall Street movement. And so there's this almost like semi sort of conspiracy theory among some leftists is that mm-hmm. this stuff is kind of being used um, as a distraction. Like this is why the headlines are there's, if there's a police shooting, like that's, that's, that's the headline is like um, you get people very, very focused on police violence. All of a sudden they're not, they're not really worried about like the 1% and, them writing the policies and them, you know, like, um, yeah, just squirreling away, uh, all the enormous wealth uh, of the country. Um, and sometimes, I don't know, sometimes I think there's something to that, like, um, Mm -hmm. that we might, we might actually do a better job of reducing the racial wealth gap if we focused on social class more than race um, and then you've, if you t- say that to a CRT theorist, they're like, oh, well, that's why we talk about intersectionality. And it's like, right. well, sure, but, like, look how this stuff's implemented. Like, look how, you know, look how these these trainings are implemented, which are not CRT, but they're, they're part of a, a vast family that includes CRT of, of these, these woke ideas. And, like, like we said, like... Um, you know, intersectionality is part of CRT. Even microaggressions, it is part of CRT. Like in the CRT book I was reading earlier, talked a lot about microaggressions. So, yeah, I... So... what's We've what solved are, it, guys. We've what, solved what, it for our <laughs> podcast. What, yeah, what's the... What have we... I feel like we've agreed on a bunch of stuff, which is somewhat surprising. Um. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to wrap this up. Do you? Do you guys have final words that you want to share? Um, I'll share one other thing. I think that the current CRT ban that we all agree is bad is the end result of a selective application of the cancel culture critique that many outlets have participated in with reckless abandon and basically just applied it only to the left and ignored instances where it occurs on the right. And so now you find that a lot of uh, politicians are emboldened to do something about it, quote unquote, Um, and they've implemented these CRT bans and those, as we all agree, are not good. And I think there's a it behooves us to responsibly apply the cancel culture critique uh, evenly across the left and the right, because clearly the right and the left are both doing it. In fact, the right is using the power of the state to implement a ban on what can and cannot be said, which is far worse than anything we saw on the left, which is more just a, 
you know, within across individual prof- professors saying like, I don't like this. You don't like that. We don't want this in our journal, but that's not the weight of the state behind those. Is it worse I mean, than I, I would say destroying that individuals lives? That's happening on the left and right. So, so that's, we're controlling for that. That's, that's happening on both sides. This, this happened to just anybody, you know, there, there have been, uh, uh, Keurig machines destroyed, Nike uh, shoes destroyed. There were, uh, Colin Kaepernick's career was destroyed. I mean, we could just go down the list of, of these things happening on both the right and the left. So that's, that's just consistent across both sides, which I think, just to be clear, I think most of that emerges from a of a uh, environment that's due to uh, outrage culture that comes from uh, from uh, uh, social media more than anything. I think the, the instant access to something that will outrage us has driven most of this effect. I don't think it's a right or left thing, um, and the, but there's only one side that's using government to implement their vision of what is acceptable parlance to discuss in the classroom, and that's on the right. Um, well, I was going to bring up the question of whether any threat of free speech is into like what we can, uh, include in education is necessarily tied to cancel culture or if it could just be a separate thing. Um, but I don't know if we really want to get into that. Um, I guess like a few takeaway points for me are stop getting caught up in the terminology. Like it really doesn't matter if it's if it is CRT or isn't CRT. Nobody cares. Um, I mean, I'm sure some legal scholars who care about CRT care, but there's it is sort of like you lose control over it. It's like people, you know, like Muslims who like care that their version of the Islam is the right version, but then there's terrorists who are like claiming that their version is the right version. It's like, you can't control what people do with any label. And so really, like, I would really like to see some coherent arguments for teaching the things that are specified in the bans um, and and against them. And like, I think we should really be getting at the content of it. Um, And then... I think that in terms of making like racial progress and social progress, we should really be focusing on like evidence-based um, practices, not just in trainings, but like in general. And there's no evidence that calling all white people racist is a good thing. Uh, I think there might be pretty good evidence that it's a bad thing. Um, same with like you know all these things about. Uh, white privilege and I don't know like all of these things are might be true I I probably would agree that they are true but it's just not effective and it's just leading to pushback and not getting us to where we need to be so let's just move on I like this because Manny's like kind of covered the the bands are bad Rachel's gone back to well the trainings are bad and I just want to pick out one thing you said, Manny, which is like, well, they're using the state 
to censor speech, which is worse. This is worse than the cancel culture on the left because the left's not using the state. And honestly, I, I'm not sure it's worse. Like I, for one, one point to note is that, well, the left is doing this in places. Like, I don't know if you've heard about like in Scotland, you can now be put in jail uh, for saying offensive things like about trans people, stuff like that. So there's, and then there's the laws in Canada um, that they brought in, um, made it like, it's like a fine if you misgender somebody. Um, but then as Jordan Peterson once asked, well, what if I don't pay the fine? Like, like theoretically you can end up in jail. My understanding so, of his, he misrepresented that law, but. Oh, maybe. Um, I'm not really, yeah, no, not really a fan, but, um, yeah another another discussion so but i think yeah the scottish the scottish law is is a thing as far as i know okay so is it worse so like often i so the left you're right they're they're not making laws saying you are not allowed to say this and you're not allowed to say that uh and you will be fired if you do they're not but like it they're putting that in practice quite quite often like making making people firing people uh mounting campaigns against people uh there's like a lot of lot of examples of people getting fired for saying things that uh like the left doesn't want you to say um and to me in some ways it's kind of it would be better if the left did make laws and tell me clearly what i'm not allowed to say because it's in, in a lot of ways it's worse kind of not knowing because we all like sort of know uh, what you're not allowed to say. Um, but there is this ambiguity around it. Right. And it's a constantly moving, it's a constantly moving target, right? Like this guy McNeil, I believe his name is, was fired from the New York times for saying the N word, like in the context of explaining um, an issue where a girl was kicked out of school for, for saying the N-word. Like he, uh, and this, this led to an investigation in 2019 which, where he was cleared of wrongdoing, but it was picked up again recently uh, and made a whole bunch of people at the New York Times angry and he was, he was fired. Um, now, there's no, like, legislation saying you can not ever say the N-word even if you're, like, explaining uh, a situation where somebody else used it. Right. So you're sort of recounting um, an incident. And even the person that he was talking about wasn't using it as a slur. They were using it, I think, like to describe a slur or something. So, yeah, like in some ways, I wish the left would decide what we can and can't say and put it in legislation. And like, because then I could do the pod and I would know, I would know exactly, exactly what the boundaries are. I think you wouldn't be able to do the pot anymore, actually. <laughs> well, well, that's no. the point. That's the point is that you wouldn't be able to in the first place. You've gotten away with it for so long. And that's the difference. <laughs> maybe, like, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. In Oklahoma, they, they've actually had to cancel courses because they're worried that they're going to lose funding for their university because some Republican, uh, you know, congressperson somewhere will decide actually because you said the wrong word at some point we're going to cut funding to your university that's insane that the, that kind of power is not it's just not matched on the left um 
And in terms of McNeil, like it wasn't just him saying, mentioning the N word, the whole use mention distinction. He apparently also made additional sexist and racist comments that at the end of the day, like I'm not involved in this situation. I don't know what he said. He might've said something that is totally justified in his getting, in getting fired. The, the fact is like a lot of the times when somebody gets fired, we don't get to hear why. And so it enters into the culture war narrative and then it becomes another example for why somebody was fired un- unjustly. And at the end of the day, we don't know we weren't there. And so I, I you know, a lot of this stuff I is, mean, we've had this conversation before. Well, up we went yeah. there when this university canceled these courses too. So we don't, we don't maybe, you know, maybe it what? was because it's, it's the, or when maybe enrollments were low you know like we weren't there when like, <laughs> we weren't there when nicole hannah jones didn't get tenure right? right yeah like i feel like this this is being selectively applied here a little bit manny this uh well you know eh, could well be, could be some other so <laughs> so i mean the 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 uh jones example is a good example of one that we really don't know a lot of the details but it has come out that that so-and-so has said you know the the person that the unc department is husserman husman husman the guy who the department is named after came out and said that he sent an email saying well i'm not sure about her because you know i don't know if she's like you know, cool or whatever. And so mm. that's, that is suppo- supposedly the justification mm. for her not being accepted. Yeah. But I, I still yeah. say it would be great if the left did explicitly write down what we're allowed to say and what we're not allowed to say, um, you know, for, for threat of like losing, losing our job. It would be great because then we could actually like, you know, defend ourselves and say, well, like, I, I didn't say the thing that you have made illegal. The, here's what I actually said. But like, it's all this, it, I think it's like the ambiguity uh, helps the cancelers. Um, there's all this like, so, so what you're saying is X and like, and everybody does that. And whenever you hear that, whenever that's the start of a tweet, it's a bad faith. It's a bad tweet. It's like, it's uh, it's the worst possible interpretation of something. But yeah, like, uh, I mean, it, there are dog whistles. Like, dog whistles do exist. Like, people do say one thing when they're trying to get an audience that knows what they mean to understand what they're saying. And I'm not saying like that's probably a small percentage of the cases where people start off a tweet saying, "What you said is this. What you really mean is this." Um, we probably have that in common. Like, I don't think you should be mind reading very much, but dog whistles do exist, right? The existence of somebody saying one thing that's ambiguous, but they really intend on saying this other thing is definitely a thing. Like that was the welfare queen narrative in, in the eighties under Reagan, like, and that there are people involved in that, that narrative that came out later and said, we were trying to make like activate people's racist, uh, ideas about who gets welfare. That's the whole, that was the game. Um, but yeah, we, that's a side point, I guess. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a fair point. There's that famous, like, I think it might've been a recording of somebody who right. was like, yeah, back in the old days, we would just say N word, N word, N word, but now we have to say welfare or something like that. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. That like, <laughs> Again, not not defending these not conservative politicians. They're, they're scum. Like 
I hate them. <laughs> like, they're, yeah, they're bad. Gonna... It's bad people, bad, bad faith people. But yeah, also some of those on the left, I think. I was going to respond to something you said, which is like, there's a lot of ambiguity. I think that is a natural thing that's going to happen given the tumultuous amount of change that we're living through. We're living in a time now for the first, like me too, just happened. Like gay rights just happened. Like you just got the ability to get married. There's all sorts of people now who 10 years ago did not deserve your respect or consideration. And now for the first time ever in American history, we have to start thinking about what is the right way to think of, to talk about and, and describe our LGBT co- colleagues. And like, it, it just, we just got rid of like, don't ask, don't tell. And so we're living in a new, very tumultuous era where we're trying to navigate a new social circumstance that never has existed in American history. And I think it makes perfect sense to me, at least that there would be a lot of toes that are being stepped on constantly to try to figure out the new dance that we're trying to dance and and i'm i'm not that surprised and it seems like it would be a consequence of that reality but does the lack of charity make sense like in the context of rapid rapid change does the like demonization and like no yeah or i mean it it, social ostracism of people who step over the line like it makes sense from a standpoint of like we've been um we've been dealt a shit hand for the last hundred some years and we're angry about it. And this is how we react to it sometimes. Um, and to other people who are, and, and, and just to be clear, like there's most of this comes from white liberals who like, just think of Robin D'Angelo as a perfect example. And just to be clear, I think she's done harm. <laughs> she's this is like been really bad for the, she's coming out with a new book. I liked your tweet, Rachel. You're like, is this her autobiography? Cause it's like, how white liberals ruin everything. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's describing Robin D'Angelo to a fucking T. Um, yeah. I, I agree with you. So I think, I think like, but it's also white people coming to the realization that they have, that people like them have been complicit in this history and they want to upend that and play their part in, in moving in the right direction. And they don't necessarily always do it correctly. Um, but that sounds very human to me. That sounds like the kind of thing that humans would do when they're confronted with uh, their role in history or their ancestors' role in history and reacting to it. And, yeah. Would you say it's inherent? <laughs> it's inherent to human nature? To, uh, <laughs> to the white liberal, probably not. <laughs> white liberal human nature. I don't know. <laughs> probably not. It probably has a lot to do with our culture. <laughs> Uh, and social media i i hope i have to always emphasize people like i really don't think that all of this will be happening the way it's happening if we were still reading newspapers and watching tv mm. like no. it's incredible the anyway yeah yeah but yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a good place to leave it um i have enjoyed this discussion more than i thought i was kind of dreading it um especially like <laughs> You always okay. want to hear that from the podcast hosts that you're going on. <laughs> no, like if you if you watch these, like the Joanne Reed interview with Rufo, it's just like I don't know. It ma- makes me want to like gouge out my eyeballs with a fork. Like it's it's just painful. Like the level of discourse about this. Um, but I think mm-hmm. we 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 we've just come in and, and done an incredible job with it. <laughs> 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 patting ourselves on the back real hard right now 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so hopefully, you know, hopefully people do listen to this and and share it widely. And and you know, racial racial harmony is finally achieved. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Right. <laughs> I'm the host. I should I should just end this. Uh, thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, do you, you can both maybe just plug, plug your stuff. I mean, nobody's going nobody's gonna to follow up on it, but just for the hell of it, <laughs> go, go. you should yeah, plug your blogs and stuff. Manny has good blog. <laughs> plug each other's blogs. I don't, maybe, maybe I I don't really. Uh, no, I don't know. I'm, uh, okay, so here's the thing is that I'm getting married in a few months hey. and I'll be changing my name. And like now I have to deal with changing my whole like online presence, you know? Why? But I don't want to. Can I ask why you're changing your name? Oh, you might have already yeah. said this somewhere. Um, so a couple of reasons. One is I want us to have the same last name. And like Hartman is a nicer name than Ernstoff, in my opinion. Um and it's also, you know, traditionally, like you go with a man's name and, and I'm, I'm just like a, you know, traditional conservative. <laughs> um, I knew it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you caught me. Uh, no, I mean, like the, the whole like feminist thing is like, you know, keep your last name, but it's like your last name is your dad's last name, probably. So like, what are you, yeah. you're not really doing anything there anyway. Um, and, you know, if we have kids, like I want them to, I want to have the same last name as them and for them to not have a super long hyphenated name. So, it, it, I don't know, it just makes sense to me. Um, but then there's like, okay, I'm changing in my personal life. Should I change it in my like professional life? But then I don't know if I want to deal with having two last names. So it's just the whole thing is such a mess. Um, but yeah, so okay. I might, you know, I might have to change the name of my website because it's like rachelornstoff.com right now, but it might be rachelhartman.com whenever people are listening to this. So come find me wherever, <laughs> wherever I am, <laughs> you might have to do some digging. <laughs> I can always update show notes uh -huh. and stuff like that, I guess. Um, but yeah. Yeah, but also, you know, if anyone has any advice for me, that's that's my plug at the end of the pod. Feel free to reach out. Tell me how to deal with things. I always I always love getting in terms of your marriage. <laughs> in terms of name changing specifically. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll plug my pluggables. So you can find me on Twitter at M Galvan psych galvan g-a-l-v as in victor a-n um and i also have a website called science of social problems.com and yeah. i also have a youtube that's called the science of social problems uh it's like the youtube channel so i only have three videos up one of them uh is actually like psycom stuff the other two are just kind of uh videos at a company and then I'm coming out with another one soon that's going to talk about the tendencies in the skeptic movement, which I consider myself a part of, that I feel make the skeptic movement harder to uh, less capable of address addressing social problems. Um, 
skeptic so movement. In the United States, there's a skeptics movement. It, I consider it starting with Carl Sagan, um, who was a big science communicator in the 80s, and, 70s and 80s. And he kind of handed the torch to people like Neil deGrasse Tyson. But then there's also the new atheist movement that emerged from the fighting against creationists. Um, and... Yeah, so, so I talk about this in the video, the history of the skeptic movement and why, uh, how we ended up from somebody like Carl Sagan as a science communicator um, and where, how we ended up where we are now and what are the tendencies in the skeptics movement that are hindering progress on social uh, issues, at least from my perspective. Sounds it's a little bit different than my last content. Yeah, I think people should follow both of you on Twitter. I feel like both of your tweets, both of you tweet solid tweets and don't get much engagement. And it actually makes me feel better because I have the same experience on Twitter. I just think it's hard. It's hard to climb the Twitter algorithm and get Definitely. your thoughts in front of people. Cause like, yeah, the bigger accounts get more engagement, which leads them to be put in front of more people and the rich get richer. And mm-hmm. for it's a, it's tough for us struggling grad students um, or postdoc as I will be soon. So then you're both going to have to listen to me because there's really like, I know like at the moment we're sort of on the same level <laughs> as grad students, but pretty soon, a couple of months. Oh, I'm going to. Are we even allowed to like be on the same Zoom call? I don't know. I, <laughs> I may have to mute you and just let you speak at, at like select moments. Um, It'll be a, a presentation where <laughs> you're just like lecturing us. Yeah, I'll be like, you know, guys, I used to think that when I was a grad student too, but like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just like you uh, not that long ago. Anyway, uh, thanks again. God, this is going to be a long podcast. I may actually edit like a bunch of stuff out. Um, you always just, say that, but then you just uh, leave everything in. I'm just lazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Have a good weekend.